Before we open up God's word this morning, let's bow our heads together and go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we're so thankful that we have you to turn to and come to in times of difficulty, in times of adversity, because we know that you are an ever-present help in time of need. And Father, one of the ways in which you manifest your care and concern for believers in this church age is through the ministry of the body of Christ to one another. Often this is somehow overlooked in a lot of teaching related to Scripture, but it elevates our identity as members of Christ. It elevates the uniqueness and distinctiveness of the church in this church age above any other group of believers in history or in the future. And it informs us that we have been blessed so richly, and yet we have such a paucity of teaching on this tremendous subject. So, Father, we pray as we continue this study this morning that we may be challenged and we may come to a greater understanding of what these commands mean and that we may see by the strength of the Holy Spirit uh, you're working these things out in this body of believers. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, well, as we know, we have been going through a study of Ephesians Uh, chapter 4, and we have come to a passage that talks about the fact that we are members of one another. And this flows out of a context that began in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, as Paul began to challenge the Ephesian believers with the implications and the application of what was laid down in Ephesians chapters 1 through 3. So he begins with the word therefore, because he's drawing a conclusion in light of all of these many spiritual blessings with which God has blessed us. There are applications and implications for the way we should live our lives and the way the church, the body of Christ, should function and operate. And in the beginning of this chapter, there are the various commands to walk worthy of the calling, the high position, the exalted position with which we have been called, and that we are to manifest humility. We are to work, strive to preserve the unity established by the Spirit in entering us into the body of Christ And then there's the emphasis on what we have in common. And then in verse 7, there is a shift that focuses on the grace that has been given to us by Christ as a result of his ascension and being seated at the right hand of the Father. And that what he did as the church was born in Acts 2 is to give certain leadership gifts, gifted men, to the church, apostles and prophets, which were temporary gifts, and evangelists and then pastor teachers for the equipping of the saints to do the work of ministry, not to the equipping of the pastors to do the work of ministry, not the equipping of the deacons to do the work of the ministry, but every believer. And that's the background for being able to understand a passage that we uh, came to later on in this passage that talks about the whole body. Verse 16, from whom, that is from Christ who is our head, the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies. That goes, that supply is done through that function of each believer being equipped and doing the work of ministry, not just a few, but every person in the body of Christ has a role and a ministry. So that it, it, it is um, from the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share and causes growth for the body 
through the edifying, for the edifying of itself in love. So as we have developed our understanding of Ephesians 4 over the last, actually it's been a very long time, I think it's almost been a couple of years, there's so much to understand here, that Paul comes to this point in verses 17 to 24 that as we correctly translated it, that number one, we have already put off. It's not a command. It's not uh, as it's often translated. And we went through the uh, Greek and the exegesis of that, which conforms then to the way it's translated, slightly different Greek grammar in Colossians 3. But they say the same thing. Colossians 3 is has only one way to translate it, and it's talking about what we have put off and what we have put on. We put off the old man, that is everything that they, we were in Adam, and we have put on the new man, which is defined in uh, Colossians 2, I mean, excuse me, Ephesians 2, 14 and 15 as this new body, this new entity that has come together of Jew and Gentile together now in one new body in Christ. So that contrary to way a lot of people have understood this passage, if we let Paul define his terms, the new man is this new entity, this new organism in Christ. It is the church, the bride of Christ in this age. And the, our role then following salvation is to be renewed in our in the spirit of our mind, which is our thinking, we have to we are renewed by the word of God, and so we come down to verse um, uh, twenty five, and this says, for this reason, that is, for this reason that we are in the new man, because you have already put off the lie. It's the same tense and the same word here that is used back in verse twenty two that we have already put off, and it's not usually translated, uh, This, but, but it's not lying, it's not a participle or a gerund, it is a noun with an article, meaning the lie, uh, which is the lie of Satan, the lie of the of those in Adam, the lie of the non-biblical worldview that so often uh, pressures us to conform to it, as stated in Romans 12, too. We have put off the lies. We put off the old man. And then the command is, let each one of you speak the truth. I put the the in brackets because it's a... that. It, the, the noun in Greek is without the article, but in Greek grammar, often the a noun without the without the article is emphasizing the quality of the noun. We would express that in English by using a, a, an article. So let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, and the neighbor is then defined as those in the body of Christ who are members of one another. So from that jumping-off point, we are looking at what the Bible teaches about being members of one another. This goes back to what I quoted a few minutes ago in Ephesians four, fifteen and 16, that each one of us is a joint supplying something to the edifying of the body. Romans 12, 4, and 5 says that we are all members of one body, and verse 5 says that we are members of one another. This is echoed in 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 14. I'm going through these rapidly because we've gone through them in much detail. And again in 1 Corinthians 12, 25 to 27. This is a an important concept. We are not just individual believers all headed in the same direction. We are not all, we don't all have our own lane, as it were, going down the highway of life, but that, that we are members of one another. There's interaction. There's an interdependence and uh, an interrelated nature to our ministry. This, as I keep pointing out, goes against the grain of an American value, which is rugged individualism. Now, as far as that goes, that's not 
there's an importance of individual responsibility and taking ownership for our lives and seeking to do our very best and to excel. But we are not isolated from one another in the body of Christ. So we are not all just doing our own thing headed to spiritual maturity. We are a body that uh, functions together as a team would function. So we started looking at these different aspects, and the Greek uses the word alelone in many, many passages, which are talking about how members of a congregation should minister to one another as well as uh, to other believers in the body of Christ who may not be part of the same uh, assembly of believers. And these, the primary command, as we've seen, is to love one another, and this is what Jesus lays down in John 13, 34, and 35. And most of the other one another commands are telling us, giving us specifics on how to fulfill this one broad general command to love one another. It is repeated several times by Christ in the Upper Room Discourse. It is repeated by the Apostle John in his writings, by the Apostle Paul in his writings, by Peter in his writings. And so we know that this is a an important uh, mandate for every single believer. As Christ said, it is by this, by our love for one another, that all will know that we are his disciples. And I keep repeating this. Uh, often people get confused on this, that a disciple, the word disciple is not a synonym for a believer. There are many who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, but not all are disciples. A disciple is one who is a learner, a student, one who goes beyond being a baby believer, an immature believer, but one who is studying the Word of God in order to grow and mature. And that involves a study. It involves uh, taking the time to make that a priority, to make the Word of God a priority. We read the Word of God. We reflect upon the Word of God. We memorize the Word of God. We internalize the Word of God. And those are all vital if we are going to let our thinking be transformed by the Word of God rather than letting the culture, the world around us, press us into its mold. So as we've gone through that last time, I used this analogy, this illustration rather, and I think this is important to understand. There are prohibitions, Paul says, to being busybodies in the church. We'll be about our own business. And sometimes when people read these commands, they read them as if one another means everyone. And it's not quite the same because we don't all know one another the same. Some of you I know only by name. I do not have much of time to spend with everyone in the congregation, even though we are a smaller congregation. You look at people with our pastors with larger congregations. They, there are many people we don't know that well. We know their name. We know what they look like, and we can call them by name maybe, maybe, when we see them. But um, not everyone is in that close knit of a circle. It has been observed in uh, business and management circles that somebody, people don't have much more direct influence on more than just a few people, somewhere between five and eight people, uh, because we just don't have the time and the energy to develop in-depth relationships with everybody in the same way. And so these concentric circles are to illustrate the fact that we have uh, different levels of friendship and intimacy with people. And that also relates to trustworthiness. So we don't and we can't have the same level of ministry to everyone because we don't know everyone well enough to have more intimate forms of this ministry. But as we do develop those more intimate relationships with others in the congregation, 
then we are able to exercise some of these ministries in a more uh, robust fashion. So uh, starting with the outer circle, these would be the people that are acquaintances. We know maybe a few facts about them. We know their name. We can recall their name if we're fortunate when we run into them at the grocery store or uh, some other place where we're out and about. Uh, it may be a neighbor, someone we occasionally chat with when we're uh, outside working in the yard or they w- are walking by doing their exercise, something like that, or someone we see once or twice at church, but they sit at the opposite end of the auditorium, and so we don't uh, even know their name, but we know that we worship together. So that's an acquaintance. That's how we are with a lot of people in the body of Christ. That doesn't really give us much of a framework for exercising some of the these ministries because they, they involve uh, the fact that there's a foundation, a framework of trust in that relationship and a level of intimacy. Let the cir- circle C would be those with whom we share an interest or hobby. Uh, maybe we golf with them, we work out with them, uh, we have kids who are involved in similar things, so we see them at a lot of different events and we begin to develop a relationship with them uh, based on those common interests. And in some cases, that's going to develop into a deeper level of, of knowledge and friendship. And this is where we see someone, we consider them a friend, someone we can relax with, someone we can talk, we talk with frequently perhaps, or spend a lot of time with. We may even come to a level where we are socializing with them and maybe even to spend time in prayer with. Now you see that goes from one level of intimacy to another level of intimacy because not all of us would want some of people we call friends. We wouldn't take the time to necessarily pray with them. But there are others where we would have that we've developed that sort of closer, uh, more intimate relationship. And then the closest, which is probably reserved to uh, only a small number of people in your life and mine, that we actually call a a close friend, someone with whom we feel comfortable sharing some of our deepest uh, challenges and faults and flaws and uh, things that we have rejoiced over and that we trust them not to talk about them to other people. We trust them because there has been a history of this relationship uh, history of development in this relationship. And on the basis of that, we can exercise a much more intimate uh, one another type of ministry. And we have to be careful. We have to have some maturity and some wisdom to know that those with whom we have a level D relationship, that we're not going to be able to jump immediately and treat them as if they're a level A relationship. It takes time, but we must always remember that within the body of Christ, there are uh, these these mandates that we have. So it's all part of our work at, uh, at ministering to the body of Christ, and that's why we have to be equipped by the ministry of evangelists and pastor teachers, the evangelists. Uh, are often mistakenly thought to be those who go out and do evangelism. That may be part of what they do, but in this passage, evangelists and pastor teachers have the purpose of equipping the saints to do the work of ministry. So we have had evangelists in this congregation in the past who have done various things to help train people in evangelism. Just uh, recently, a group went over to a Fort Bend County Fair and got the opportunity to uh, learn how to do a gospel presentation to people and to actually give a gospel presentation. And some people there had never never done that in their whole life. So that is equipping the saints to do the work of ministry. 
That is part of what Paul says in Galatians 5.13, that through love we serve one another. And last week I covered the first uh, three or four of these, and I'm just reviewing this now. In number four, we are to, we are members of one another, which is what's emphasized in 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 14. For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body, now that's not talking about the local body, that's talking about the universal body of Christ. All the members of that one body being many are one body. So also is Christ. So how do we get into this body? Well, that's verse 13. For by means of one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks. Now, that's my, my translation there. Whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one spirit. For in fact, the body is not one member, but many. And so this is the found the, the result of the baptism by the Holy Spirit. And as I've pointed out many times, we get confused on this because in English, when you read a sentence like this, for by one Spirit we were all baptized, baptized is a passive verb. In English, you use the preposition by to indicate the one who performs the action in a passive verb. So you look at this and you think the Spirit does it, and you would be wrong. In the Greek, they also have a preposition that they use to identify the one who performs the action in a passive verb, and it's not the preposition that's in this verse. It's hupa. There's no hupa here. It's the same preposition you have in the other, I believe it's seven other passages that talk about the baptism by the Spirit. John the Baptist saw, was talking to the crowd, and, and he said one would come after him who would baptize by means of the Spirit and by means of fire. The one he was talking about is clarified a few verses later when Jesus came down, and he said that he is the one who will baptize by means of the Spirit and by means of, of fire indicating that Christ is the one who performs the baptism, and it is performed by means of the Spirit, just as John the Baptist performed the baptism for repentance by using water to affect that identification with the new state. And that is a lengthy Bible class that we've gone through numerous times. So it is Christ, the head of the body, who uses the Holy Spirit to identify himself, uh, identify us with himself in the body of Christ so that we have this chart, the eternal realities, and when we trust in Christ as Savior, we are placed in Christ, in the body of Christ. This is in the new man. We are, as, Paul, as we saw Paul develop it in Ephesians 2, we are a new body, we are a new man, we are a new building, and we are a new temple. There are four different metaphors he uses in the second half of that chapter. And God the Holy Spirit is used by the Son to identify us with his death, burial, and resurrection so that we are then in Christ. In Romans 6, 3 through 6, this is stated as the foundation for understanding how we should think about this new reality of who we are in Christ and how that should affect our walk with the Lord and our spiritual growth. So that we've defined the baptism by means of the Spirit as the work of Christ, whereby at the moment of faith alone in Christ alone, Christ uses the Holy Spirit to identify the believer with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. So that there is one baptism. That's what Paul talks about in the first part of chapter 4. There is one baptism, and that's by means of the Holy Spirit. Christ performs that baptism. The instrument used it to affect it is the identification, or to, or to affect that identification is the Holy Spirit, and the new condition is into this body of Christ that is ours. So, 
First um, Corinthians twelve twenty five and twenty six uh, emphasize that. So does Romans twelve five and Ephesians four twenty five. We're members of one another. That is so important and so rarely taught. Then last time, and I've developed this a little more, we ended with this point. We are to encourage one another. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean to encourage? Well, if you've been, if you've been around here very long, you know that the first thing you have to do is, what does it say in the Greek? And that doesn't clarify anything. In fact, it seems a little more confusing. In Romans 1.12, Paul uses the word uh, sum parakaleo, which means to uh, maybe encourage together. That S-U-M prefix indicates together. He says that that is that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith, both of you and me. Same word is used in 1 Thessalonians 4.18. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Now, I don't know about you, but I see a difference between encouraging and comforting. I see a different context for, for, for encouragement from comforting, as we'll see. In 1 Thessalonians 5.11, Paul says, Therefore, comfort each other and edify one another. The concept of edification is building them up, strengthening them in the Lord. So that's related to the idea of uh, comfort here. What does it mean to comfort someone? In the Oxford English Dictionary, the word comfort means to give somebody a consolation or console them in a time of grief or anxiety. So comfort has some different nuances for people. But first we have to get a grip on this word, parakaleo. A noun form of this word is paraklesis, and another noun form is paraklete, which is the term used for the role of God the Holy Spirit. Our Lord uses that title for him several times in John 14 and John 15. He is the another comforter who will come and indwell us. And so different translations use different words because this word has a broad range of meaning, and so there, it, we struggle sometimes to try to figure out what it is. In the in uh, Bauer, Danker, Arndt, and Gingrich, the main dictionary for lexicon for Greek, it's the second meaning. First meaning just doesn't relate to apply to this uh, these things at all. The second meaning says to urge strongly to appeal to someone, uh, to urge, to exhort, or to encourage. So we could translate it with any one of these words, but there's a bit of a difference, as you can see, between maybe exhortation and encouragement and urging strongly. Uh, it can also mean, under the third meaning, to make a strong request for somebody or to invite somebody somewhere. It's translated with that idea in several passages due to the context. Um, it has a fourth meaning is to instill someone with courage. That's what encourage means. So somebody's, I'm not sure what to do, and you need to give them biblical counsel and uh, strengthen their courage to do the biblically correct thing. So that's, that's the idea of encouragement there, to instill someone with courage or cheer to comfort them. You know, even in English, the definitions of comfort and encourage seem not to be too synonymous. So I just want you to understand that this is a term that can be understood in a variety of contexts and dimensions. So unfortunately, we like to have things in a nice narrow little box, and this isn't one of them. So what does it mean to exhort anyway? It means to strongly encourage or urge someone to do something. So we can see that exhortation, but usually we think of exhortation in terms of something public, and it may be in a, like a message, a sermon, or Bible class. The word comfort means to console for grief or anxiety. So you can see that you really have to think about the context to see what's going on here. Um, 
the the verb form parakaleo occurs some 109 times in the New Testament. It means in some passages to summon, to invite, or to ask, or to implore. In other passages, it has that idea of exhorting or challenging people to a course of action. In other passages, it has that idea of comfort or consoling them or encouraging them. Uh, the words are not found in any of John's writings or James' writings or Second Peter. It's mostly used by the Apostle Paul for, for the... Um, uh, for the verb. So you're going back to the meaning here. It has this idea, this range of, of meaning. And you see it, for example, in Romans 12.1 in the New King James says, I beseech you therefore, brethren. I would guess nobody here has used the word beseech in at least a week, probably several years, if not more. And so the Holman Christian uh, Standard Bible translates it as it do, in this verse as it does in numerous references as urging somebody to, to do something. So I have a, listed at the bottom of this slide a number of the passages uh, that are, where it's translated urge. And you should notice that that the first two references are in 1 Corinthians, but there's, and this isn't all of them, there's a large number in 2 Corinthians, where Paul uses it to urge people. It, it, it's interesting that in 2 Corinthians, the verb is used 18 times and the noun is used 11 times. That's a record. That tells you something about what the nature of 2 Corinthians is about. It has to do with exhorting them. It has to do with telling, teaching them about comfort, uh, many different things. And so... Uh, we have to look at this context. And as I was studying this, I thought, can I find a biblical example of someone who is encouraging, that, that, that's a good illustration of a parakaleo incident, and, and it's 2 Corinthians. So you might want to just turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians, because I wasn't going to put all of the first chapter up on the screen. And he is writing this, it seems part of the purpose here is to encourage them in times of adversity, that we all face times of adversity, uh, times perhaps that word could be translated as tribulation as it is in many passages. It could be translated as uh, adversity or suffering or uh, a number of different different ways in which it's even translated in this passage, including suffering. So in uh, verse 3, which isn't on the screen, Paul just begins this opening section of the epistle by saying, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of all mercies and of all comfort. So right there at the very beginning, he's focusing on this in the sense of comfort and consolation for those who are in difficult circumstances. He says, he, that is God the Father, comforts us in all our affliction. And that word there is parakaleo. So coming to understand part of what that means if we are to comfort one another. We have to start with how God comforts us. He comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any kind of affliction. In other words, we have to learn the lessons through our experience that God comforts us in those tough times so that when people we know go through adversity and tough times, we have an idea of how to comfort them. Now, I want to just stay where you are. I'll just go over and and read uh, read a passage to you. In First Thessalonians chapter four, uh, Paul talks about the the problem of knowing or not knowing what happens to a loved one when they die physically. Paul had only spent at no more than two months in Thessalonica. Obviously, he had taught them about future things and about the rapture and about what happens when Christ returns. But a lot of a lot of Thessalonians didn't understand that that 
there were going to be their loved ones were going to die before that event happened. And so they were a little confused. I can understand that because if you've only had two months, even if you're the Apostle Paul, and you've only had two months to teach people, you haven't had enough time to cover every everything in depth. So they're they're a little confused, and Paul says to them in verse 13, but I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren. He does not, does, in English, they accurately put a comma there. He's not saying, I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren. He wants, I don't want you to be ignorant, comma, brethren. Concerning those who have fallen asleep, this is a euphemism for believers who died. It's only used of believers who have died. It is never used of unbelievers who have died. I don't want you to, and it's not talking about soul sleep. I don't want you to um, be concerned about um, those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. Now, those he's talking about are those who have fallen asleep in Jesus, not those who have fallen asleep on the back row. They're asleep in Jesus too, but um, lest you sorrow as those who have no hope. Now, one thing that has occurred to me that did not occur to me when I was younger is now I have a number of friends, close friends, that are not believers. When they die, I will sorrow as those who have no hope. So will you. You have friends and family members that are not believers. And we will sorrow like those who have no hope because we know that they will not be with the Lord. But for those who are with the Lord, we have hope. And so he goes on and he says, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Four verses. A bit of a sermon, isn't it? A bit of a Bible class on what happens after death. Now, I would suggest that probably most of you, if you have ever sat down with a friend or loved one who has had someone very close to them die, that you have walked them through that. That's not our culture's idea of what comfort is. But if you look at verse 18, Paul says, therefore comfort one another with these words. This tells us what comfort is. Comfort is putting our focus and attention on the truths and the realities of the Word of God. It is nice to show care and concern with uh, hugs and just sometimes you just need to sit and be quiet and be with people during a difficult time. And that, that I'm not taking away from that. But at some point, the way we comfort people is with God's Word. So when we look at this first chapter where of, of 2 Corinthians, where it says that God, in verse 4, God comforts us in all of our affliction. How does God comfort us? Does he just make us feel warm and fuzzy? Is it some sort of internal thing? Or is God doing it through his word? Is God making sure that we understand the realities? As James says in James chapter 2, Count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various tests. Why? Why How can we count it all joy? And the next word is a participle, but it's a causal participle. Because you know something. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. See, the Christian life is a life based on truth. It's a life based on knowledge. It's a life based on uh, focusing our attention on what God has told us about these kinds of circumstances. And it's not about get, getting a warm fuzzy. There's nothing wrong with that, but it only goes so far. It's not about even feeling good by singing a hymn 
that may be very good and may be encouraging. We'll talk about hymns when we, when we get there in the one anothering. We won't get there this morning, I don't think. But God comforts us in all of our tribulation. Thlipsis is the word. It's adversity. It's not talking about the tribulation in the future. It's talking about the adversity that we face in this life. And, and Jesus says that he faced much uh, tribulation, and he told his disciples, and you will too. So we can expect that living in the devil's world. So he comforts us in all our tribulation that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Notice how many times he's using a form of parakaleo. So when we are to comfort one another, we have to understand what that means from a biblical perspective. And it's, as I said, it's fine and it's good for the hugs, for sitting quietly with somebody as they just struggle with accepting the uh, grief or the collapse of things in their life. But the real comfort comes from the truth of God's word. Verse 5 says, For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us. Now, I've known some people who say, well, I don't really suffer, but, but we have to understand what suffering means is any kind of consequence in our life that is the result of living in the devil's world. And so that doesn't necessarily mean it's being thrown to the lions in the Colosseum. But it is the fact that there are difficult circumstances that we face because of the consequences of biblically sound decisions that we have made. And then we go through uh, that kind of suffering. Verse 6 says, Now if we are afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation. Have you ever thought about that? That may be a reason that you have gone through some suffering, maybe the death of a loved one, maybe the loss of your uh, financial security, maybe the loss of a home. I understand that for someone who has lost a home through fire, that it's just devastating. All your memories, all your photos, all the things that you treasure that your children uh, did or had, it's all gone. There's nothing left of your, your whole life. And for people who don't have the Word of God, it's, it, it's crushing because everything they accomplish, there's, there's no longer any memories there. So, but the, a person who goes through that with the Word of God strengthening them is then able to come alongside. That's the literal meaning of parakaleo. It means called alongside, but it, it has that, that's not its definition or translation meaning. So if you're afflicted and you go through suffering, you have been consoled by God, and so you learn how to console others from the Word of God, the promises that you value where God uh, strengthened you. He says, if we are afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation. That's not talking about uh, your justification when you trust Christ as Savior. That would not be excluded in some context, but it's talking about your phase two. Remember, we are saved. Uh, there's three senses or tenses for salvation. At phase one, we are saved from the penalty of sin, at phase two, we are saved from the uh, power of sin. That's our spiritual life as we grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And in phase three, we are saved from the presence of sin as we receive our glorified bodies and we are face to face with the Lord. So it is for your consolation and salvation is talking about present deliverance so that you can make it through the crisis. You can make it through and glorify God, which is effective for enduring the same sufferings with which we also suffer. Or if we are comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation. See, he says that twice. 
It's our affliction is for your consolation and salvation, and the comforting is for your consolation and salvation. And then he says in verse 7, And our hope for you is firm, because we know that as you share in the sufferings, so you will share in the comfort. One reason God brings adversity into our lives is so that we will grow. That's James 1, 2 through 4. But it is also so that we will uh, learn some lessons that we can then use with our ministry to others. So Paul goes on to say a number of things all through Second uh, Corinthians related to, to suffering. That's why he uses the word so much. Another example of what this means is in Acts chapter 14, verse 22. Uh, this is talking about, I believe this is talking about the Apostle Paul strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them, there's our word, exhorting them, urging them, pleading with them to continue in the faith, don't fall by the wayside, and saying we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. Now that phrase, as we've studied many times, is awfully misunderstood today. We are not in the kingdom. The kingdom is future. There are those who believe that we're in some already sort of picture of the kingdom, but the more I've studied Ephesians and what Paul is saying about the church, we're in the church we're not in the kingdom. The church is different from the kingdom. Kingdom always speaks of the Messiah, future messianic kingdom and the millennial kingdom, and we are in the church. And so, but we will be in the kingdom. As church age believers, as the bride of Christ, we will be ruling and reigning with the kingdom. So, so we, to rule and reign, that's part of our rewards at the judgment seat of Christ. And so we go through tribulations, and by obeying, obeying the Lord, then we accrue a maturity, and that maturity will be the basis for our responsibilities in the future kingdom of Christ. That's what he is saying there. So we are strengthened in our souls. In Acts 15.32, Judas and Silas themselves being prophets also exhorted and strengthened the brethren with many Words. So often you have this concept of strengthening or edification that is aligned with the comfort. It is designed to enable and strengthen those uh, so that they can apply the word and move forward and grow in maturity in the midst of these difficulties. So what we are saying when we encourage them is what? Let's go back to the verse that we're working through. For this reason, Paul says, because you are in a, the new man, you have already put off the lie. So we don't appeal to humanistic psychology. We don't believe to those wonderful motivational messages that we may have heard at some seminar related to our work. Uh, we are going to encourage people with the truth. We've put off the lie. We encourage them. We speak the truth, the word of God, with our neighbor. That is how we uh, demonstrate uh, this, this encouraging of one another. It is grounded in the word. Comfort them with the word. But you know what you need? In order to comfort people with the word, you need to have the word of God in your soul. You need to be reading the Word of God. You need to be reflecting on the Word of God. You need to memorize it. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. So that by knowing God's Word, then God the Holy Spirit has a tool he can use so that when you need those verses, guess what? It's amazing. God the Holy Spirit brings it out of your memory, and you have that to encourage people with. So it all boils down to the fact that we need to all be disciples, to be students, to be studying the Word day in, day out, uh, reading it, reflecting upon it. Uh, and there are so many different ways that are available to us today. And so we need to take advantage of those things. And as we grow to maturity, we are able, to, therefore, to to minister, to serve one another 
as that is why we are equipped. So we've just gotten through one more point, but we'll continue next week. So with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, let's go to the throne of grace. Father, we thank you for all that you have done for us as believers in Jesus Christ, in this new entity of the church, the church. We are not Israel. We are not the kingdom. We are the body of Christ and the bride of Christ. We are a unique organism in history that has been uh, identified with the Savior's death, burial, and resurrection so that we might have newness of life. So, Father, we thank you that we have had the opportunity to just think through across the board what you have said about our responsibilities to one another in the body of Christ and to be challenged with our the need for our own spiritual growth and maturity and that even though that seems very slow to us, over time we look back and we see that there has been progress made. So, Father, we pray, too, for any who may have been listening today who have never trusted in Christ as Savior, who have never clearly understood that we are born separated from you in a state of spiritual death, and the only way that we can move to life is by trusting in Christ who died on the cross for our sins and that he paid the penalty and that as Scripture says, he was buried and he rose again the third day, which is a picture and is used in Scripture to illustrate our new life in Christ and that all that is necessary to be saved is to trust in Jesus Christ, that he is who he says he is, that he has died on the cross for our sins that he paid it in full, as he said at the end, to telestai, paid in full. There's nothing we can add to it. We can only subtract from it if we try to add to it. And we must rest completely in it that Christ has died for us and that in that, in trusting him, we have everlasting life. So, Father, we pray that you will bring these things back to our mind and that God the Holy Spirit will use it to strengthen us, to encourage us, and to uh, move us to spiritual maturity. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.